is a fear within the great house that everyone here is threatened by an evil as yet unseen. An evil that has something to do with an antique shop and those who live there. And on this night, there is reason to fear for the violent actions of an eldritch and unimaginable creature will result in terror at Collinwood. Before we descend into the secret underground lair hidden beneath the profane cairn of the Leviathans, I want to thank Bill Mize, who has a variety of great podcasts, which are all grouped under the Bill Makes Podcasts banner. He has Bill Watches Movies, which there are quite a few uh, episodes of that. There's also Bill Watches Serials. There's uh, Monsters by the Minute. Uh, So he has a series of great podcasts that you can find at BillMakesPodcast.com, and you can also find them on your favorite podcast app. Bill reached out to me and asked me to send him a promo to include in his show because he does these fantasy sponsors, but he's just very kindly promoting other shows, which is very nice of him. So I didn't have a promo for Terror at Collinwood, so I made one and I sent it along to Bill and he'll be including that in one of his upcoming episodes. And uh, I'll also put the promo up at the uh, Terror at Collinwood YouTube channel. Um, Also, just a quick apology here toward the end of the episode and the last 15 minutes or so, there is some audio distortion, uh, unfortunately, uh, some echoing and some uh, static crackling sounds. I tried to fix as much of that as I could, but uh, there was only so much I could do. I am definitely not the most technologically advanced individual, shall we say. Uh, But this is a great episode with two absolutely sensational guests, so let's get to it. Be careful, my friend, where you tread, for I warn you now, there are spoilers ahead. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. Tis I, your hostess, Penny Dreadful, a.k.a. Danielle, and I am thrilled and delighted by my guests today. It's a double dose of terror today because I have... Rick Lay and Stephen Mark Rainey joining me to talk about <laughs> the Leviathan. But first, let's introduce these guys. Um, of course, Rick Lay is the author of books on pulp heroes like The Shadow and Doc Savage. During the 80s and 90s, he wrote articles expanding on the world Newton universe concepts of Philip Jose Farmer for pulp magazine fanzines. Most of these articles have been collected by Altus Press. His short stories have appeared regularly in the Tales of the Shadow Men anthologies published by Black Coat Press. He wrote an excellent article entitled The Colin sport horror, dark shadows, and the Cthulhu mythos for the Lovecraft e-zine, which I will link to in the description. 
and Stephen Mark Rainey is the author of numerous novels, including Blue Devil Island, Dark Shadows, Dreams of the Dark with Elizabeth Massey, The Lebo Coven, and his newest book, Fugue Devil Resurgence. His short fiction has appeared in over 90 publications, including Cemetery Dance, Shroud, Love in Vain 2, Robert Bloch's Psychos, and many more. For a decade, he edited the award-winning Death Realm magazine. He also wrote the Dark Shadows Big Finish audio dramas, The Path of Fate, Blood Dance, and The Curse of the Pharaoh, as well as a great unpublished Dark Shadows novel, The Labyrinth of Souls, which fans can read on his site. And I'll post a link to that. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure to have you guys here. Uh, People have written to me and said, when you do Leviathans, you should talk to these two guys. And from the beginning, you were the the two guests I had in mind to do the Leviathan storyline to talk about it, because I know uh, you guys are are fans of the Leviathan storyline and of the works of H.P. Lovecraft as well. Um, But uh, before we get into the Leviathans, let's talk a little bit about how you guys got into Dark Shadows and just classic horror in general. And we'll we'll start with Rick and then jump over to Mark. Well, I got into horror watching Chiller Theater. Oh, great. Creature Features in the New York area. There was always some show on a local uh, show on a local station. Exactly. <laughs> I watched him too at one point, but it was always when he was showing universal uh, horror movies for the most part mm-hmm. and some American international long while before Hammer got syndicated in the United States. And when I was in the sixth grade, so this would have been, well, actually for this, during the summer of uh, 1965, my grandparents lived with us during the summer at a summer house in uh, Breezy Point, New York. And they used to watch soap operas. They watched General Hospital. And then this, I saw these commercials for this new soap opera while they were watching it called Dark Shadows. And it was suggesting that it was going to be a ghost story. So I watched the premiere of Dark Shadows. Oh, wow. And I watched it for about a month. And then I felt the story's going nowhere. It seems to be a murder mystery or a a kid trying to kill his uh, father. It was the original version of David Collins. And I gave up. And then about a year later, or probably about more like eight months later, when I was in school, People just tell me there's a vampire on Dark Shadows. Now, I tried to watch one episode and I saw Barnabas and they didn't show the coffin or the fangs in that episode. So I didn't watch Dark Shadows again. So then that summer, uh, I was back with my grandparents and they had it on. And it was at the point of the story where uh, Barnabas has kidnapped Maggie mm-hmm. and had a locked in the basement. And that's when I got it into it. So that's how I got into Dog Shadows. Uh-huh. Did you continue to watch it for the rest of I the I watched week? it, watched it regularly. Oh, great. And and how about you, uh, Mark? I remember you, know, you po- used to post a lot on the Dark Shadows forums. So we're both uh, mm-hmm. members over there and all the great discussions. But how did you first get into all of this? Well, I, as a little kid, I, you know, I, I caught a lot of the black and white horror movies that would come on TV and they, they scared me pretty good as a youngster, but I could not stop watching them. I and if there was one on, I was going to watch it. And uh, we spent a lot of time at my grandparents down in Georgia. I lived in Virginia at the time. In fact, I'm I'm at the house where I grew up right now in the same room where I first started watching Dark Shadows, just by coincidence. Wow. (laughs) Uh, You know, I usually watch the Popeye Club and Speed Racer and the afternoon shows like that. And just by chance, one afternoon, this is I think this was the very first episode because I remembered I had seen a commercial or something with, you know, a logo for Dark Shadows. And I thought, oh, that looks kind of creepy. I'm going to watch it. And so it 
turned out that, uh, that was the first episode. And I watched uh, however long we were there, probably three or four more days, you know, and I watched those as at the time I was, let's say I would have been seven, six or seven years old at the time. So I think it was the music that actually grabbed me. I'm like, this stuff is eerie. And even though they, it didn't get eerie right up front, it, uh, it grabbed me. And so when we got back to Virginia, we found that our local ABC affiliate didn't run Dark Shadows. Oh, uh, no. The only way you could get it was to have cable TV. And in 66, very few people around here had cable TV. But later I found out my friend Frank, who lived up the road, well, he had cable TV. So I invited myself over every chance I could so we could watch Dark Shadows over there. But it was very sporadic. Um, you know, I didn't have any kind of sense of continuity of the show. All I knew was that at one point, you know, I had heard about Barnabas Collins, Vampire and stuff. And I finally went to Frank's house, turned on Dark Shadows. And there he was. It was Barnabas Collins and he was a vampire. And it was actually scary to me at the time. Yeah. And it it wasn't long after, well, I don't remember exactly when that was. It had to have been during the 1795 period. There was um, there was a, a snowstorm that I ended up at Frank's house rather than coming back to my house because there was a very steep hill. And so Frank's mom came and picked us up from school because we got out early. And uh, we plopped down to watch Dark Shadows that afternoon. And it was an episode where Lieutenant Nathan Forbes is waiting for Barnabas with a crossbow, you know, and he shoots... Barnabas with the crossbow and Barnabas is like, you didn't get my heart, Lieutenant. And that scared me so freaking bad. Yeah. I did not sleep, sleep a wink that night. And from then <laughs> on, I, I was just a diehard Dark Shadows fan. And so in 69, we got cable TV at my house. And that was the very beginning of the Leviathans episodes. They were just starting up. <laughs> so to me, having only seen Dark Shadows sporadically prior to that, to me, it wasn't like I was getting into something that was subpar. It, to me, this is this was Dark Shadows. You know, there's a very mean Barnabas. He's got fangs. We've got deep breathing in a room. I was I was absolutely mesmerized. And that's a great segue because that's what we're going to talk about today is the Leviathans. Dan Curtis, you know, he is the one based on interviews, you know, with Sam Hall and things that Dan Curtis, his, his assistant, I believe, brought a book of Lovecraft tales to him. And he was really into doing this storyline. He was excited about doing this primarily Dunwich Horror inspired storyline with other elements as well. And uh, I think at the time, you know, we up until this point, we've been seeing more traditional uh, gothic archetypes in the show. You know, of course, the vampires, the ghosts, the werewolves, zombies, etc. But this was something really unusual, I think, for the average viewer, even even, uh, you know, horror fans perhaps may not have been as aware of this type of thing, you know, the cosmic horror Lovecraft type story. Um, so what, what is it about the Leviathans that you like? Uh, what is it that attracts you to that storyline? I had not read Lovecraft at that time. I, I later, I think a year after that storyline was done, I actually went to Dunwood Horror. Mm -hmm. And I saw where everything was coming from. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I, at the time, it was a very unpopular story. And it was unpopular. Some people think it's because people couldn't get a grasp on uh, what the Leviathans were. It was so original, even though, I mean, Lovecraft had been around for a while, but the average horror viewer 
you had no idea what was going on. It's like, why? It's, well, when the, like when the werewolf storyline first started up, you knew what was going on at the beginning. If you had been a horror, I think you're not, at least in the classic movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I suspect the reason it really wasn't popular was because it opened up with Barnabas. It, it, it had gone from being a villain to an anti-hero. Yeah. And he was possessed by these strange spirits from the dawn of time. And he became a villain. And that, I think, is what made it initially unpopular. Yeah. But I we watched it and got over that. I was okay with the, the elements of the Leviathans and whatever. And it eventually picked up because they realized the mistake that they had Barnabas as the main villain. They um, shifted him away. And he didn't have any kind, he, he wasn't a reluctant villain like when he had initially been a vampire. Yeah. He was totally evil and a devoted agent of the Leviathans. Then they started to have him develop the guild again. And then he broke free and gets cursed as being a vampire. And they bring back one of the classic villains, Nicholas Blair, yeah. to run the to be the head baddie in the uh, Leviathan storyline. And that's Humbert Allen Estrito was this great actor. Yes. That I think. That's why it regained popularity. And uh, also um, the Leviathan, the Messiah, who was uh, Jeff Hawks, played by Christopher Pennock. In the early part of the uh, Leviathan storyline, they had uh, this monster that you first saw as a disembodied spirit, becomes a baby, and then goes through these stages where he's being played by different child actors. And... Even though he could be very creepy, there was, a, there was an element of um, a movie called Village of the Damned. Yes. Which uh, may have been influenced by it. Was, it was based on a book called The Midwick Cuckoos by St. John Windham. And that had elements of the Douglas Car. The, the kids were somewhat frightening, but uh, Chris Pennock did a very good job as Jeb Hawks. So near the end of the storyline, we get we were getting a lot of great villains. Yeah, we had um, Michael uh, Stroker. Yeah, return. He had been Aristide in 1897, and then he was playing a similar character named Bruno in this storyline. But the imagery of the Leviathan box and the Leviathan book, I think, all that serpent jewelry imagery was very creepy. And developed the following. Yeah. He also integrated uh, werewolves very well in the story. Says enemies of Yeah, and you pointed out uh, that 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 came from uh, Robert E. Howard, which was interesting because I I wasn't aware of that. What was the Shadow Kingdom? I think you said Shadow a, a war between uh, mankind and an alliance of non-human I, races. Yeah, Lovecraft dealt with uh, wars between godlike beings. And there is some, uh, there are alien races fighting, but they're very divorced from resembling human beings. Sure. Any which way. Yeah. Robert E. Howard had this idea of mankind battling an alliance of monster races, which were serpent men, werewolf, bird people, Mm -hmm. were all sort of animal people. And they kind of took that, in uh, the Dark Shadows, the writers, and developed it, or sort of altered it, 
So it was the monster races fighting among themselves. Yeah. And yeah. the werewolves had been allies of a race that Robert E. Howard created called the Serpent Men. And the writers changed it to make them enemies. Now, the Serpent Men had the ability to shape shift and become, replace human beings. It was not like the scrolls in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the writers changed that in that uh, the Leviathans, whose symbol was a seven-headed snake, could possess, uh, it was implied that was their true form, but we never really saw it. Yeah, and I want to talk about that later on, too, what the true form could be. But it, yeah, it's serpent-inspired, you believe, yeah. They said it was a spirit, a soul without a body. Uh, the Leviathans were described as. So the Leviathans could possess human beings instead of doing actual shape shifts. That's how they kind of adapted that, that idea. Mark, how about, uh, let's let's get your input here um, in terms of, you know, why uh, the Leviathan story, you, you talked a little bit about it, discovering it uh, first as a child, and that was kind of like, you know, you, you saw that and that was dark shadows to you. So what is it about the Leviathan storyline today that resonates with you? And why do you think it was, you concur with um, what Rick said with regard to why it was not as popular at the time? Uh, largely, I do. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, the, um, an, the introduction of the Leviathans to me was the creepiest part because, you know, you had a thing you couldn't see and you'd hear, you know, there was the the closed door in the upstairs of the antique shop owned by the Todds. And you'd hear this deep breathing coming out of there. And this, to me, was a classic example of how you don't see what it is. And and mm-hmm. given Dark Shadow's budget, thank God you didn't see what it was. <laughs> but when you heard it, or when I did, it scared me half to death. And the memory, of, well, at, as the leviathan story progressed they you know they i was a little disappointed by the time it got to chris pennick and he fell in love with carol and i'm like you gotta be kidding me he, he's a monstrous dude he, he kills people uh so to me that started losing me and the second scariest part of that was the the youngest kid the one named alex he looked like my cousin Oh, gosh. That <laughs> scared the fuck out of me because he looked like my cousin. <laughs> and he sounded like my cousin. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit meaner. Um, so the kid, you know, when I was a kid, and, you know, I, forgive me, but I, I've never been a big fan of kids. And when I was a kid, I didn't like kids. They scared me. Little, little scary kids like, like Alex there. And uh, at the time, I thought, okay, we've got these great kid actors doing scary things. And then Jeb is at first, he, he can be intimidating and all, but, but he starts softening up. And I didn't care much for that. And also, you know, like I said, I hadn't seen the evolution of Barnabas from mean vampire to sympathetic vampire to, you know, normal person racked by guilt and everything to the point where he just becomes he becomes hand wringing and, and ineffective. And that always kind of pissed me off. So I was glad that we've got a mean Barnabas again. Well, back then, I mean, I never knew Barnabas really wasn't me. To me, he was just always meaty, and I, I, I kind of like that. And to this day, I, I feel like I, I know they had to have the character evolve, but uh, I, I always preferred it when 
Barnabas had that dark, hard, strong edge about him. It, it yeah. just made him a lot more effective than, uh, you know, bemoaning everybody's fate while sitting in his easy chair going, what can we do? What can we do? <laughs> I think when he was when he was human, when he was made human again, uh, at least temporarily, it's when he when he's a vampire. The, the thing about Barnabas is I never, although he did become the protector of the family in some respects, he was always very dangerous, especially when he was a vampire. I mean, he killed a Carl, uh, you know, He's he even at that point when he's trying to save David, you know, he's killing off a member of the Collins family. Barnabas was right. unpredictable. And I think that's part of what made him fascinating is that those shades of gray with Barnabas, he could do good things. He could also do really bad things. So I, I always yeah. but he was always very yeah, I, that, that that was what I felt was the best best portrayal when when that dark side of him if not overtook the good side, it showed through so blatantly. And I, I always appreciated that about the character. But in the uh, Leviathans, I did enjoy seeing uh, Dennis Patrick yes. as Carolyn's father, because I remembered, you know, that, that he had not been a good man. And yet he seemed to be mm -hmm. in, in this, you know trying to really turn things around and then look what happens to it, you know? Yeah. And I thought that's actually pretty freaking tragic. Right. And I thought that was a great part of that. Although, you know, there's the, the infamous still photo of him. In, oh. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. It was great bringing him back. And that, that was a great, uh, you know, we're kind of jumping around the storyline. I want, I want to get into a little bit more in terms of the key points of the storyline, but that is great that they brought Paul Stardard back because that's a thread that went back to to the beginning of the of the show yeah, yeah, and when we, and uh, tying up the the Jason McGuire what the what he pulled with Jason McGuire and bringing him back mm -hmm. years later is just such a, for a long time viewers that that must have been especially exciting to see well, they brought Paul Stoddard into the show and to have him played by Dennis Patrick too was just fantastic yeah. what a great that was great he was got in such a great actor man like. Mm -hmm. Rick, though, I had not read Lovecraft uh, mm -hmm. prior to the Leviathans. In fact, it was quite a few years later. I didn't read Lovecraft till I was in college when a friend of mine had a whole bunch of the old Valentine Lovecraft paperbacks. And he said, I, these seem like books you might like. So I started reading all those. And when I got to the Dunwich, and I think I had seen the AIP movie, The Dunwich Horror, but mm -hmm. uh, that Stockwell. was that at the yeah. time. That was probably my only real exposure to Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. But when I read the story, I thought, you know, this is kind of Leviathan's issue. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, the more I read of it, the more I got, I came to understand, you know, th and this was long after Dark Shadows was off the air and there wasn't much, wasn't much in the media. Dark Shadows wasn't, it wasn't forgotten, not by a long shot, but at least for me, it was still way in the background of things. It, it mm -hmm. wasn't at the forefront. It was. It just sort of tickled the memory there. The, the fascinating thing too with with what they did with the Dunwich Horror was they took um, Wilbur Waitley and combined him with his brother, who's locked up in the room, and turned him mm -hmm. into one person right. or creature rather. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's definitely. Um, I think with Barnabas, I mean, we have Barnabas at the end of 1897, which was an extremely popular storyline and the highest ratings that the show got. And then he goes back into the past through the portrait with Kitty Soames, who is the literally this time, the reincarnation of Josette. They go through the portrait, they end up in 1797 and uh, Barnabas is, you know, overtaken by these cloaked figures. And then they send him to the present with the, with the box, with the Naga box. And he is, 
even when Barnabas was at his worst as a, as a vampire, Barnabas was always, there was, Barnabas was passionate when he was, he was deadly and passionate and he could also be tragic. And there were, there was an emotional component. This is an emotionless Barnabas, cold, detached, aloof. And I think that was very disconcerting as well for the audience. And for Julia Hoffman, Julia notices that something is off about Barnabas, really off about Barnabas. And I think this is also where where Julia becomes, uh, Julia was always a prominent character in the show, but there are stretches without Julia, like in 1897. Until she's brought in to play a role there for a time. Or 1795. Here, Julia becomes a protagonist and she is the protagonist in the show because now Barnabas is the main antagonist back to being the main antagonist of the show, but this is a very cold, detached Barnabas. The thing that finally shakes him out of the Leviathan's control later on is the fact that they command him to kill Julia when she cannot be brought under the sway of the Leviathans. The alternative is to kill her. And this is where Barnabas finally, this is where he starts to break free of their control later on. It's when they want him to kill Julia Hoffman, his best friend. He, uh, you know, after all they've been through, uh, this is where he starts to break free of the Leviathan's control. But this happens a little bit later on. And then the Todds come in, these new characters that are Philip and Megan, who open up their antique shop and they're the chosen ones. They're given the box, which contains the essence of the Leviathan creature, you know, as we've talked about, the children. Yeah. Ghost of Alexander Michael. Those three stages. And then finally, Jabez Hawks. Rick, you touched on this a little bit, but what do you guys think the true form of the Leviathan creature is? I used to think when I was a kid, when I watched Leviathan, I thought the Leviathan storyline was really cool when I was a kid. It was so different and strange. And I hadn't read Lovecraft yet at that point. I did shortly thereafter, but at that point, I hadn't yet read Lovecraft. Uh, I just thought it was really weird and creepy, but I always kept waiting for them to show what it was, what it looked like. Like I wanted to see what it was probably for the best that I didn't, because I, I may have gone mad. Perhaps I already did just from that breathing in the room. Um, but I, at the time, based on the Naga imagery, I assumed that it must have looked something like that. It must have been inspired by that. Um, but that doesn't seem terrifying enough to drive someone insane. And I saw someone draw like a hybrid almost of, I, it was, I ran across it online years ago. It was, it had the Naga look to it with the serpent heads, but it was sort of combined with this Lovecraftian idea where it looked really scary looking, like disturbing. Like it was not, uh, the, the proportions were all really strange. So what do you guys, starting with Rick and then Mark, what do you guys think the Leviathan form might actually look like? I would think multiple heads, serpent-like neck, but more humanoid face. Okay. Than a reptile. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I like that. What about you, Mark? Do you recall the Dunwich Horror with Dean Stockwell? And there's this flash yes. of the thing behind the door. And it's actually, and when they finally actually showed the thing, it's it's silly and yet disturbing mm-hmm. because it's like a face with all these serpentine tentacles that may have faces on them. And if I took that into maybe a less unintentionally, I'm not even sure it's unintentionally funny in a way. I look at it now and I'm like, oh, look at that. But I remember seeing that when I was a youngster and thinking, holy crap, man, that thing's scary as hell. So I did envision something with multiple 
if if not heads, sentient appendages, things that that made this array of whipping serpentine things that might not look quite like the Naga box figure, but definitely something with a lot of thrashing, snapping, intelligent yeah. with an intelligence. Yeah. to it and and that that may be kind of vague but but I think that's part of the point of Lovecraft is that it, it leaves he he will be explicit about certain things and other things are very suggestive so he he leaves your brain to paint the most vivid picture possible of these things yeah and I, that's how I envisioned this this thing not quite describe you could describe its attributes but not what was truly in it, what was behind it. I, I like that. It's like the human mind can't fully process what, what, what it, I think Barnabas even tells Julia at one point, it's like nothing, uh, it's indescribable. He makes some comment to that effect. It's like nothing that could be comprehended or he made, he made some comment to, to that effect. Um, So this creature grows and eventually becomes Jeb Hawks. And all through this time, you know, Carolyn, who is forever destined to be linked up with whatever monsters on the show romantically. But, you know, uh, it's uh, every single time. But she's uh, she is supposed to be the chosen one, the bride of the of the Leviathan creature. Uh, And Jeb falls in love with Carolyn uh, over the course of this period of time. Um, We also have other characters coming back but we have angelique is is back in the present day which is great and she's been working as a model apparently uh she's with sky rumson uh and they're they're living off uh, on this island we got grant douglas who shows up who is quentin uh quentin right. collins comes back and barnabas under the influence of the leviathans because the leviathans are taking over all of these members of the collins family some people are susceptible to being taken over i've showed them the book or that which i believe that book must be sort of the analog for the necronomicon i would assume so yeah, yeah. so the leviathans take over members of, of the collins family including elizabeth and uh, David, Amy falls under their sway, but Quentin loses his memory. Barnabas hits him with his car. Grant Douglas is the only name he's going by. Um, there's also Olivia Corey, who is Amanda Harris, who's now in the present as well. So that storyline is going on. Uh, but I love it when uh, David and Amy see Quentin and they're totally freaked out <laughs> at first. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Yeah, that was good. Uh, which is interesting because they remember, you know, talking about Barnabas went back in time and changed history where Quentin didn't die, right? So he was never a ghost, right? He's immortal now because of the Dorian Gray painting, as we see, which it looks like the Ivan Albright painting. Uh, it looks a lot like the uh, from the uh, classic film. Um, so Quentin is is in the picture. He gets his memory back when he sees this painting. What do you guys think about this whole idea of the Leviathans wanting to reclaim their place on? It's, it's interesting. Like they want to use Collinwood as their base of operation, or Collins Port as their their starting point, and then they link them up to to Nicholas Blair who they also bring back. It's interesting. They bring back all these characters, Paul Stoddard, Nicholas Blair, et cetera. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on all of this? Initially, they start out with this idea that the Leviathans are this eldritch race that predates humanity, but then they also go in the direction of, they also happen to be these beings of the underworld that are somehow linked to uh, Satan, to Diabolos, uh, and Nicholas Blair is sort of put in charge of them. Uh, he comes in to sort of course correct what's going on with, with Jeb. So what do you think? Do you like the idea of linking them with Blair and Diabolos or no? I'm I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sort of made Nicholas Blair 
a monster race expert. Yeah. <laughs> got two plots. And the first plot is to create this Frankenstein race. And the second plot is to revive the Leviathans. And they actually, they said it was originally his plan. Yeah. In the early episodes, there's a, uh, references to a guy named Strack. And I think originally he was going to be the main villain. And he was played by, I can't think of the actor's name. Oh, John, John Harkins. Yeah, John Harkins, who was uh, Garth Blackwood. And a chemist in... Um, yeah, Horace uh, Gladstone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I think because... I think Nicholas Blair was a course correction on the show to saying we, we need a better... We need a, a more powerful villain for the audience than uh, Strack. So they just brought him back. I think rather quickly, I would like to see more of it. Mm -hmm. But they did something weird at times with Kev Hawks. There were storylines that are not developed about it. There was some flashback with Quentin telling the kids, don't trust Jeb when he was a ghost. So we knew about Kev Hawks somehow. And the only hint of how that could have happened was Quentin, when he gets his memory back and he meets Kev Hawks, he says something, I have a strange feeling we've met before. The only place I could have met you was a place I've never been, and that's hell. Oh, interesting. Now, we have this weird parallel story because of the way Barnabas changed history. Some, some weird things happen with timelines. Yes. They sort of combined. So to most of the people living in Collinwood, they remember Quentin as a ghost, and then it ended abruptly when David died and then came back to life and Quentin stopped being a ghost. But Quentin is, seemed to be living in an older timeline where he just remained an immortal because of the portrait and then pops up at Collinwood. So he would have been in hell in the original timeline when he was a ghost. So he must have memories of that or something. Um, it, well, we know Jeb had previous incarnations at, at some point because in the 18th century, we have we have that whole storyline about Peter Bradford's ghost seeking vengeance on Jeb because, as we find out, Jeb caused Victoria Winters to to fall off Widow's Hill, um, yeah. so which was quite shocking. I remember when I watched that at the time, it was like, whoa, Vicky died off screen. Oh, no, what, what's yeah. going on here? Um, and initially, it seemed that Jeb was this formless being that came into existence from, well, we find out he did take human form at some point in the past because he know, he recognizes Peter Bradford. He, he's terrified. Um, so it's interesting. We have the ghosts of their victims can come back to get vengeance on them. And also the werewolves, the, their ancient enemies, the werewolves. Now, I always felt that when I first saw that too, if they're from time before humanity, how can there be werewolves? But I assume at that point, maybe the concept of a werewolf was, was more of a spirit creature. Like if there was no human to turn into, there's, just, there's no, uh, there's no were part of the werewolf. It's what, you know, uh, so it's kind of trying to wrap my head. I like trying to figure out how that works. You guys have any theories on, on that? If they're borrowing from Robert E. Howard, he had werewolves in uh, a story called Wolf's Head, which is sort of, uh, shares the same as mythology of the Shadow Kingdom. There is some discussion of this war between humanity and monster races. Right, right, yeah. And werewolves uh, start up as pure evil spirits that are wolf. Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I was and, thinking. And then they possess a human host. 
I see. And mm-hmm. kind of merged with it. Yeah. And I, I assume it was something similar there then um, that they were pulling from that uh, concept. Mark, what are your thoughts on this whole uh, thing with Jeb having a prior incarnation in the 18th century and the whole Victoria Winters angle? What were your feelings on that? Well, it felt like, uh, of course, as a kid, I didn't notice that much. In later years, when I, you know, I've, I've probably watched the entire series through about four times and then assorted parts of it, you know, uh, more than that. Um, And I suppose it's a little bit cynical, but as the more times I've seen that part of the story, I just, I can't help but get the feeling, okay, the writers keep painting themselves into a corner. So they have to fall back onto something that the audience is going to better identify with. And so hence, to my mind, the, the great old ones who were, you know, was, were, and ever shall be and all that, suddenly we, we've got it sort of being conflated with the more traditional religious depiction and, you know, the, the hellish industry. Now, I, I will say I appreciated the fact they brought Nicholas Blair into it simply because I think Humbert Allen Ostrato is just so eminently watchable. You mm-hmm. can't you, you you can't not love him <laughs> as a villain. So yeah. whatever mechanism they used to bring him in there, I was jumping up and down, going, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, this was great." Uh, so at some point, I stopped thinking as much about the logic or these the strange continuities that were resulting from all this and sort of seeing it more of just sort of, okay, we're going to, okay, we've gone from this one experience and we're going to twist things around a little bit plot wise. And I, the, what came to me later, um, not during the Leviathan period, but once they started getting into the parallel time when they, which came shortly after, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm beginning thinking, you know, with this, the whole parallel time thing and events changing in the past, what I see here is a weird merging of dimensions. And sometimes it causes chaos. And, yeah. it, you know, and, and I'm convinced that, that the state of our country today is because they turned on that goddamn Hadron Collider you know, and it, it halfway merged the bizarro world with what with our normal world. And now now we've just got, you know, seven levels of hell all around us every day. So <laughs> we've we have we have officially entered the parallel time. Uh, yeah, I, I into, feel like that. Or yeah. Pockets. I feel like there are pockets. The, the dystopian. And, and I realize I'm being facetious here, but at the same time, I'm thinking maybe there are actually pockets where things aren't the same here as they are up there. Did, did, are you a fan of Twin Peaks? I am familiar with it. I've watched okay. some of it. Okay. I haven't there, wa- there, there's weird, in the, especially in that last season of Twin Peaks, things just, there's this whole Lynchian uh, shattering yeah. of, of normal perception of time and space. And I feel like having become such a big fan of David Lynch, I can almost apply some of this Lynchian philosophy or outlook to the things that happen in the plot lines of Dark Shadows, and I credit it to this fragmenting of time. I agree with you. I mean, and I've said this before on the podcast, too. There is so much 
tampering with the timeline in Dark Shadows, starting with, if we go back to 1840 with Quentin's stairway through time, Quentin the first building a stairway through time, yeah. making this metaphysical experiment, this talisman that he creates to travel mm-hmm. through time. We have the seance with Victoria Winters. We have Barnabas using I Ching and Julia using I Ching to go back and forth in time. Somehow a tear opens into a parallel universe in the East Wing of Collinwood, probably because of all of this other stuff that's going on and tampering with time over and over again. Um, I always felt they should have addressed that. Like there's some cataclysm that's imminent because of all the tampering with the time stream. And that's how I explain all the inconsistent dates, like 1795, 1797. Like why is it 1797 now? It's because of what you just said. Things are bleeding over from other timelines and time travel is screwing up the timeline. My friend Eric also put out the theory that, or the Collins estate, that that's enchanted ground from curse. I I can absolutely get on board with that idea. In in my younger days, I kept trying to find logical segues from one character or plot arc or whatever, you know, because it almost seems so often that, you know, what is a fact at this point, it gets rendered essentially invalid a few episodes down the road. Mm -hmm. And clearly, I, I think the writers only had limited time, limited resources to go back and reconstruct everything that had come before. And they thought, well, nobody's ever going to see this again. So who's going to care? And I, I I think a lot of the inconsistencies and the gaffes and just the directions that things went go to budget constraints, you know, the, you know, just the schedules, all kinds yeah. of stuff. But I do love and find it fascinating to try to, to untangle the knots and then retie them in some sort of orderly braid, you know? Agreed. That's why I love having writers on the show because that's the mindset. It's like, how does, how, how does this puzzle work? Like, how do I make these ideas yeah. work in a story? And it's, it's fascinating to try to play that game and try to figure uh, you out. You know, when I was, you know, when I was writing and not so much Dreams of the Dark, it was more of a straightforward story. It's kind of inserted into a timeline. But when I, when I started writing The Path of Fate for Big Finish and then especially uh, Curse of the Pharaoh, I, I lost sleep trying to figure out, you know, okay, we've got this thread. How can I work that in there? And I want to go with, you know, like the stairway through time. How can I make that work with the world I'm trying to construct here? Yeah. And uh, oh boy, that kept me awake a lot. I loved those audio dramas, especially Path of Fate. I love Path of Fate. And I even shared it with, um, there was a friend of mine who was a huge Doctor Who fan, um, but he also was getting into Dark Shadows and uh, he wanted to listen to some of the audio dramas. And I handed him Kingdom of the Dead, which I love too, Mm -hmm. and Path of Fate. And he loved it. He the Dagon inclusion and some some of the the Lovecraftian stuff you worked into that uh, is the yeah, sort. Is- you know, and this, this is a complete aside. And sorry if I'm I'm getting oh. off track, but you know when I listened to Path of Fate for the first time, and the fact that Lauren and David were so good, yes. I forgot I wrote it. I freaking forgot I wrote it. I'm like I don't even know what. <laughs> No, it was scary. It had that. It had a wonderful horror vibe, uh, as it should. I lo- loved that. And yeah, yeah and, David and, and, and Lara. That, when, when Lara goes off into the classic Angelique laugh, I yes. was in tears. I was actually in freaking tears. <laughs> oh, that's great. She is just sensational. And another great segue because. As I mentioned, we have Angelique back in the present day, which is awesome because we have 
where Barnabas back to being a vampire because Barnabas, we get the, the this episode that where the they, the writers kind of course corrected with Barnabas because the audience was upset that Barnabas had been taken over by the Leviathans. So we have this whole storyline where Michael commands Barnabas to kill Julia Hoffman, and this precipitates Barnabas's um, turn away from the Leviathans as he starts to shake free of their control. And we find out also that they're uh, threatening to turn him back into a vampire. We get Marsha Mason uh, as a one episode vampire uh, appearance. Yeah. And uh, we find out they tell him that Josette is being held hostage. History has changed here, too, because Josette ends up committing suicide by taking poison this time instead of jumping off Widow's Hill. So now that one is tough for me to swallow because that's such a key component of of the show for all those years that Josette committed suicide by falling off Widow's Hill and the whole story with Josette and Barnabas and Angelique. And now history has apparently been changed because Josette took poison instead because Barnabas never showed up. He was he was taken by the Leviathans. I like to think that history somehow reasserted itself and Josette did end up falling off Widow's Hill somehow. Um, I always but, do. I always think that way. Yeah, that yeah. somewhere in that, all that story, the real history reasserted. Yes, it kind of has to. I mean, it's just that's such a key thing. Um, so Barnabas shakes free of the Leviathan influence and he is punished by Jeb Hawks, uh, <laughs> who Roger Collins calls a cheap, insufferable pig, which is one of my favorite lines. Barnabas is back to being a vampire. And of course, this turns out to be a really bad move for Jeb, who is extremely impulsive and does whatever he wants and creates an extremely powerful supernatural enemy in turning Barnabas back into a vampire. Now you have Barnabas running around. He sets the antique shop on fire. He turns Megan Todd into a vampire. And she's fantastic. Marie Wallace as a vampire, just incredible. She preys on Philip. I mean, there's so much fun stuff that take Willie Loomis comes back to guard Barnabas. Uh, he's, you know, he says he's engaged to this woman, Roxanne, who we never meet. And it isn't the same Roxanne we meet as a vampire later. Uh, it's a different Roxanne. Uh, presumably, uh, there's no indication uh, of, of <laughs> otherwise. I think it's a coincidence. But, you know, Willie initially doesn't want to do this, but uh, he actually voluntarily comes back and to guard Barnabas during the day. And Willie and Julia are the ones who track Megan Todd down eventually and drive a stake through her heart. And then we have the whole subplot with Paul Stoddard and Carolyn and how initially, you know, there's a lot of damage that was done there, but they grow close. uh, And, you know, we find out more about, you know, Paul has changed over the years and um, he wants to be close with Carolyn again. And um, there's a great scene where Elizabeth and Paul confront each other. Oh my goodness. And Paul ends up back at Collinwood. Um, There's a flashback to uh, 1949 where we find out that Paul made a bargain with the Leviathans, with Mr. Strack. And the whole, I mean, it was, he promised his most valuable possession to the Leviathans and in return, they would bring him success. Um, and so it was Carolyn, of course, and Carolyn is destined to be the bride of their messiah, Jeb Hawks. Well, of course, as mentioned, Jeb is extremely impulsive and sees Paul Stoddard as an enemy and he 
takes on his true form and kills Paul Stoddard, um, which was against the Leviathan plan. Jeb didn't care about what the book said. Jeb did his own thing. Paul was supposed to give Carolyn away during the ceremony, so that's that's not going to happen. But Carolyn starts having these dreams uh, wherein Jeb's hands are covered in blood. In the corners of her unconscious mind, we're finding that she's she ne- she never really she never uncovers the truth uh, that Jeb killed her father. I mean, we see later on during the summer 1970 haunting storyline that she's still grieving for the loss of Jeb, and it would have been interesting to see how she would have reacted to that knowledge. You know, she was putting the pieces together in her sleep. But those dream sequences were really cool. Uh, really, lots of fun things happening. You get a scene, a scene with Willie and Maggie Evans with the Leviathan creature approaching to attack them because the Leviathan sets its sights on Maggie Evans as well uh, as an enemy. Uh, and there's a great scene where Jeb tries to convert Maggie to bring her under the Leviathan's sway and it doesn't work, but she pretends that it does. It, there's some really fun stuff. Julia finds Angelique, actually, and despite Angelique asking her not to say anything because Angelique doesn't want anything to do with Collinwood or the people at Collinwood anymore, but Julia does tell Barnabas that Angelique uh, is on Little Windward Island. So then Barnabas also goes to Angelique and there are some great scenes with Barnabas and Angelique that take place in Julia and Angelique as well. Angelique has renounced her powers. Well, she still has her powers, but she has agreed not she's not using them as another bargain with the devil you know that she's fallen in love with uh, sky rumson who is such a garbage character <laughs> I, I, it's so satisfying when barnabas kills sky rumson spoiler yes. I, I put a spoiler tag at the beginning of the show uh sky as it turns out has made a bargain with nicholas blair and is in league with the leviathans and there's a great scene where nicholas and angelique see each other for the first time since 1968. The, the looks on both of their faces when they see each other are just priceless. They're yeah. <laughs> and then um, I love it when... Best, best lines in Dark Shadows. Yes. Small. When Humbert Allen straight up says, at the risk of sounding banal, small world. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was great. Um, so he makes Sky Rumson choose between Angelique and, and the Leviathans, and Sky chooses the Leviathans and tries to put the torch to Angelique, tries to burn her, and she stops him. She uses her favorite trick, the uh, poppet there. She chokes the, the, grabs a statue and starts choking him with his scarf. And she's, you know, in full possession of her powers and goes on to assist uh, against the Leviathans. Um, but then, of course, Barnabas has set his sights on Maggie now that he's a vampire again. So Angelique puts a love spell on Quentin and has him and Mag. They, they start this whole storyline with uh, with the, they even bring back the brand, the pitchfork on the hand, which was really cool to see yeah. that come back. Uh, she eventually puts a shadow curse on Jeb, which I think that must come from M.R. James from casting the runes. I think that's a, a loose uh, you know, steal from M.R. James because it's not exactly the same, but there are echoes of, of M.R. James of casting the runes uh, or curse of the demon uh, uh, the film adaptation or Night of the Demon. My, my favorite, absolute favorite horror movie. Is it really? Why so? It is. There is something about, well, first of all, I saw the image of the demon. I believe it was on the cover of Famous Monsters of Filmland long before I ever saw that movie. And that, mm-hmm. you know, I was a kid. I saw that thing scared the hell out of me. And I saw the movie mm-hmm. when I was a teenager and the drama of it 
was so engaging. The characters, and, and I mean, they show you up front that this creature, the, the thing out of hell, it's, it's real. And yet the logic, the, the, the conflict between logic and faith moves so heavily toward logic. It's like, did we really see that? Did we really see that? And then, you, but you know, you saw it. And, and I just love the structure of that movie, the music, the acting. It, 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 it's it's a freaking classic. It's, it's fantastic. Classic. Yeah. yeah. Much better than the original story, I would say. I, I agree, actually. I like the story, too. I enjoyed the I story. Like but, I like it. Yeah. But it's the movies. Yeah, it's a definitely a classic. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, that sh- the shadow creature, this demon or whatever that is, she sends uh, after Jeb. Uh, I think that could, and then she tells him how to, pa- you know, he he sort of comes to the realization that he genuinely loves Carolyn and doesn't want, and she's terrified by his true form. She sees his true form uh, and is, you know, she sees this creature, she's terrified. So Jeb now wants Julia to cure him, which is insane. That is such a bananas idea because he is yeah. that creature. That is what he is, you know, so how can she cure him of that? I mean, she's willing to give it a shot because he basically forces uh, this uh, her to do this. Uh, he finally teams up with Barnabas and destroys the the Naga box um, and uses that great you know devil headed cane that Nicholas Blair has to to smash the scepter to smash the 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 box the the altar crumbles falls apart and uh, now it was somehow just through sheer force of will, Jeb Hawks, the, I think Dominique Lamsey is who I had on the show before, calls him a bratty elder god, which I love that description for the bratty elder god, Jabez Hawks. And he um, marries Carolyn. She becomes Carolyn Stoddard Hawks. They get married, but he's pursued by this shadow uh, until finally um, he, you know, he he tries to connect with Angelique because she loves Barnabas and he kind of uses, don't you know what it's like to be in love with someone and, and that kind of thing. And she tells him he can pass the curse on to uh, to someone else, which he puts the shadow on Nicholas. Now, this is, I've had discussions on this podcast. I've asked several guests, you know, do you think Nicholas Blair is a demon or a warlock? And I think this storyline kind of almost cements that he must be a very powerful warlock because he dies. The shadow kills Nicholas Blair. It consumes him. But then you see his ghost rise from his body. So if he has a spirit, if he has a ghost, then he must, I assumed if he was a demon, he would have no spirit that would just be him but he if he is a warlock then he has a damned soul right uh, i don't know what do you guys think about all that i think he was a human mm-hmm. at one point what about you mark I, I think yeah he probably was your well you, you know I'm, i i hesitate to use the word normal but you know a a human who evolved to some other state, a higher yes, yes. state, but was still at his core a human being. That's that's and that's the question that I pose is to me, a demon was never human. It was just that's it was a, a being that was, you know, whatever, a fallen angel or whatever you want to call it, or a creature from the underworld. But Nicholas, I think, like Angelique, I think must have started as a human. Um, but they imply, I think maybe initially when they introduced him in 1968, there's an implication that he's a demon because he talks about the pact that Cassandra has with him and, and all of this kind of thing. So maybe he was just put in charge of the coven. No, or I, I see him as kind of having power by proxy there. Maybe, you know, he he's given or uh, donated uh, abilities and powers by 
whatever entity or force is directly above him. Mm -hmm. That must be how just that sequence where his spirit rises up and then he sends Sky to go um, take care of business. I think that definitely kind of cements it for me when I saw that. Um, Other things that were happening in this storyline, in addition to sort of the core story with Jeb and Carolyn here going on in Barnabas, we also have the other components here. We have Bruno came in, as you mentioned, and he's Jeb's uh, right-hand man. He's this psycho guy in a fur coat. <laughs> and he's uh, he's after Chris Jennings because the werewolf poses a threat to Jeb. So we have the Chris Jennings storyline continuing into the Leviathan storyline. And the fact that they made Quentin immortal enabled the writers to put Chris Jennings and Quentin Collins, his great grandfather, together in a, in a couple of scenes. And there was one a great scene where I think Chris wanted Quentin to shoot him with a silver bullet or wanted him to destroy him and Quentin refused and uh, Chris you know, basically said, hey, I'm like this because of you, so you owe me at least this. You know, it was really uh, great that they were able to do that. Uh, and I love that the werewolf was part of that storyline. And I, I think at that point, too, they had evolved the makeup quite a bit, Alex Stevens in, that, in the werewolf makeup. And it was just cool, like that whole sequence with the, the zombie, the zombie sheriff, Sheriff Davenport, whose name on his yeah. grave is, she- and his gravestone is Sheriff Davenport. I remember seeing all these theories about why, why, why would they put Sheriff Davenport on, couldn't they give the guy a first name? Maybe somebody said, maybe his first name is Sheriff. Maybe it's such an honor to be the sheriff of Collinsport that you get your title uh, instead of your first name on your on your gravestone. Um, but the zombie sheriff and the werewolf chained up in the mausoleum and Bruno with the whip with the silver. It was off. Bruno was horrible to the work for the first. You feel sympathy for the you will, you will feel sympathy for Chris Jennings because he's, you know, he's the, the, the Larry Talbot of the show. He's the he's the Wolfman uh, character. He's uh, the cursed werewolf through no fault of his own, you know. And in fact. We even hear the poem from the Wolfman. Actually, it's the version from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. That's invoked a couple of times during this storyline, and it's presented as an old piece of folklore, this old poem, but it actually was created by Kurt Ziodmak in the screenplay for the Wolfman. And uh, the Wolfman version is slightly different from the one you hear in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. In the Wolfman, it's even a man who's pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. But in Frankenstein meets the wolfman, it's slightly altered. And there it's even a man who's pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the moon is full and bright. So it's full and bright now. You know, the full moon isn't referenced in the original Wolfman. It's later on that that's incorporated into uh, those films. Again, this is another thing that was created in werewolf mythology by Kurt Siodmak, as he did many things. The Silver Bullet actually predates the Wolfman, though, and he worked that in. But uh, a lot of the other things are actually new constructions by Kurt Siodmak that found their way into Dark Shadows and the full and bright version of that poem finds its way a couple of times into Dark Shadows. But uh, back to the storyline, you know, we start to feel for the werewolf because Chris Jennings is generally pretty nice guy, but uh, suffers from this terrible curse with the werewolf, this frenzied force of, of destruction that just kills whatever it sees, anybody it sees. But 
now you feel bad for the werewolf itself because Bruno is so awful to, to the to the werewolf that you kind of again it's kind of satisfying when the when Bruno gets his comeuppance and it's the werewolf who who does him in you know I, I love that you see Quentin and because of course we find out Chris Jennings is and Amy are both members of the Collins family, uh, they're descendants of Quentin Collins, and thus why Chris Jennings is a werewolf. So what did, what did you think about all that, the werewolf aspect? I loved it. Yeah. And um, one thing that was, you mentioned the sheriff before. The writers later forgot this. Uh, they had this idea that uh, anybody who Jeb Hawks kills, he can bring back to life. Yes. And later they haven't created a whole zombie army just by calling out Satan. So they threw that out. But that was sort of from Robert E. Howard's The Shadow Kingdom, where the serpent men of Elusia could control the ghost of anybody he killed, which is one of their powers, which becomes a weakness for the Leviathans. With the ghosts, yeah. But they can still bring back zombies. Yeah, but they, the writers, it would have been, if they had continued on that line, the Jebs would have been able to bring uh, Paul Stoddard back to life. Oh, yeah, true. Good point, good point. And, now, uh, when Dennis Patrick left the show unexpectedly. Yes, yep, mm-hmm. Yeah. There was some theory that when we first had that ghost haunting Jeb, it was going to be Paul. Right. And initially it was, and he burns the body and whatever. It was still going to be Paul. Then they made it... Uh, you know, Peter Bradford, yeah. Peter Bradford was going to say Jeff Clark. But it was the same oh. person. Yeah. Oh, Jeff Clark, speaking of, you reminded me, uh, Charles Delaware Tate is still around, too. He's a, this really old man who's super eccentric and lives in, the, uh, you know, uh, they they track him down. And there's they, they try to get him to paint a picture, a painting of, of Chris Jennings to cure him of the werewolf curse. Of course, that doesn't work. And uh, he's also dispatched by by the werewolf. Um, but it was interesting seeing an old child. <laughs> and there's sort of that weird... Charles Delaware to this mannequin of Charles Delaware Tate, or I don't even automat some kind of automaton that his head falls off. His head falls off. Yeah. There's a story that Roger Davis, they had to, that's one of the rare instances, I guess, where they had to reshoot it because he couldn't stop laughing, I guess, for the, because the head of the head falling off and rolling across the, the floor. Um, Mark, what were your thoughts on, uh, on the whole werewolf angle as part of this storyline? Well, and to be honest, I never really, it seemed like too convenient a device to bring back the familiar into a, a story that was kind of going off the rails at the time. Uh, I loved what Rick said about pulling the Robert E. Howard idea into it and looking at it as something in that regard. Yeah. Because that elevates the werewolf itself into something more than a physical curse of just turning uh, a human into a monstrous thing. It it takes the origin of the werewolf back into something far more, not just supernatural, but... Primordial. Something eldritch. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Something, yeah. Something eldritch. Way it must beyond have been. It. And, and, and it's, and, you know, and it's only hearing Rick say that that makes me think, you know, well, maybe it wasn't that goofy after. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, it must. I mean, that must have been what if, if the Leviathans existed during a time before humans, uh, before there was even shape in the, I mean, the, the werewolf must have been some evil spirit uh, at that point in existence. So, yeah, I, 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 I like that too. They also pulled in um, Werewolf of London, uh, the Henry Hall film with, oh, yeah. with Sabrina, because Sabrina, who had been catatonic and 
white haired was the first person who ever saw Chris transform into a werewolf. She recovers. She's, you know, slowly she comes back. She reconnects with Chris Jennings and she brings him the moon poppy, which of course is the analog for the, the Marophagia, you know, from the werewolf of London, which was an interesting because everybody thinks of the wolf man, but that's, that was actually, you know, predates the wolf man too. Uh, So that was cool. That's kind of, that's the last we see, too, of Chris, uh, Sabrina and Amy Jennings, at least insofar as the main time band is concerned, because when they come back to the present day after parallel time in 1995, they have left Collinsport to try to find a cure for Chris's condition. So poor Chris Jennings never, never gets his uh, his cure, probably with a silver bullet. Interestingly, they do bring up this idea that while because Bruno wants to, to kill Chris Jennings while he's in human form and Jeb Hawks makes the remark, you You can't do that because if you kill him while he's in human form, it will turn him into the animal forever which maybe lends more credence again to this whole idea of this primordial wolf, evil wolf spirit. Yeah. Is it really? Is is something that you can't, you can't kill a werewolf. I think it's a little different. You, You can't kill a werewolf while he's human. Otherwise the spirit will attack, will go from that human host to you. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I bet they were. I mean, you mentioned this in your art. I for, I'd forgotten you mentioned um, when I had Andrew Higgins on here, Dr. Andrew Higgins, in the uh, in a recent episode. He's he sent me um, Seabury Quinn's "The Door Without a Key." But you mentioned that in your article too, with regard to that being the inspiration for the use of I Ching on Dark Shadows. Um, so they were definitely not only looking at Gothic literature from the you know the 18th and 19th centuries. They were also looking at pulp stories clearly and pulling besides Lovecraft, but they were pulling stuff from Robert E. Howard, from Seabury Quinn and others as well. And that Seabury Quinn story had never been reprinted. Mm-hmm. So whoever got, got that idea, read the original weird tales. Yeah, they must have. They must have been reading weird tales. Well, I knew Dan Curtis was a fan of horror stories. So, but or but they also. I mean, I'm sure they were. There's a story that he hired a speed reader to, to read horror stories and summarize them. There's another story about a rolodex of horror that had all the sum. I wish I could have been there to just to see where were all these stories coming from? Like how how did they get their hands on that weird tales issue? You know. You know, back in that period, you know, the the typical werewolf model was you know your your standard the wolf man you know the mm-hmm. lon cheney and that sort of the very anthropomorphic design and i've always wished and of course it was it's impractical but wouldn't it have been cool if you could have designed you know quentin and chris jennings werewolf to look something like the critters out of the howling because those were impressive frightening, horrifying werewolves. And then you could have convinced me that maybe that would have scared Leviathans. <laughs> I always loved the tradition, more traditional looking wolfman style um, of the of the werewolf. But I, I know what you're saying, like this extremely powerful entity that that uh, their true yeah, form. Well, just so much, so much more animalistic and yet still um, far more sentient, you know, mm-hmm. You know, combining the strength of both the animal and the human in this in this massively powerful being, you know, then if and like I said, that was way beyond the scope of Dark Shadows. But in my mind's eye, I've I've tried to put things together. That I mean, I love the the Lon Chaney Wolfman. In fact, of all the universal monsters, the Wolfman is uh, that and Creature from the Black Lagoon are my favorite. But I mean, the the 
makeup and the personality that shows through in that character, yeah. man, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. But from mm. the sheer, from the standpoint of sheer power, something that would intimidate a Leviathan. I, you know, the, visually these things don't don't translate well in my brain. I do love the scene where the werewolf jumps through the window of the old house and attacks, makes a beeline straight for Jeb Hawks on the, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. And then uh, luckily, you know, for Jeb, I guess that, you know, the sun comes up and the werewolf is racked with pain and changes back yeah. into Chris Jennings. That I thought that was a, a great scene there. Um, I'm going to, I want to talk a little bit about the Quentin and Amanda thing in just a second, but what did you guys think about Jeb? as a character, Chris Pennock's Jeb Hawks, this new actor who's brought into the show, very different from any other actor we've had on the show, the late Chris Pennock, who he was just, there was something really crazed, I think, about Chris Pennock sometimes that was was fun to watch, but definitely brought a whole different vibe, I think, to Dark Shadows. What did you guys think of him? I really got to appreciate it this time went by. I also liked him when he was uh, John Yeager. John Yeager. Oh, gosh, he was just vile, vile. (laughs) The hide. And also, he just looked very strong. I wonder if they put padding in his shoulders, even when he had that overcoat on as Jaeger, because he just looked very broad shouldered. Yeah. I was glad they got rid of the fake nose real quick. Oh, me too. Yeah, that only lasted a couple episodes, (laughs) but that that was strange. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Chris was so freaking good in that. And yeah, I think he presented the human form of a Leviathan. He, He presented a madden a barely restrained madness and sometimes not that restrained and I, I feel like that's exactly what would really be if if you've got this power manipulating a human form restraining itself but only just and and I think that too is also why I was kind of disappointed when he started getting softer and falling in love with Carolyn because it's like no 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 you can't take that power and soften it to, to by human emotion. It, it it didn't work for me so well. And again, jumping ahead, that's what I started to play with that a bit in uh, Curse of the Pharaoh to sort to sort of bridge that gap between the horror and the human there. And I, I want to talk about that. Um, I want to get to you know the influence of Dark Shadows on your work uh, and and how you played in that world and in that sandbox um, for sure. I want to get to that. Um, the last thing I want to talk about though with with regard to this storyline before we move on to that is we also have the other subplot that takes place during the Leviathan storyline is uh, the Quentin and Olivia Corey storyline, and we meet we've met the devil in Dr. Diabolos, you know, now we get to meet the embodiment of death who is not what you would expect, I guess, on Dark Shadows, Mr. Best. Mr. Best, Best, the well-mannered, genteel Mr. Best. He was was really fun. Emery Bass played him. Mm -hmm. He was interesting, I thought. I thought he was a... It was an interesting depiction of of death who has come for um, Olivia, a.k.a. Amanda Harris. She's, of course, Amanda Harris is a construct. She is came to life. Uh, she was Charles Delaware Tate's painting who came to life. And she was supposed to have died in the 19th century when she kill, was killed herself. And... Um, Mr. Best let her live on, uh, but finally her time has come right when she finds Quentin again. Uh, so what did you think of, of this whole thing? And then they end up, of course, doing this whole uh, Orpheus and Eurydice thing from Greek mythology. I recognize the, uh, I was a teenager, but I had read uh, 
Greek mythology, I recognize the Orpheus connection. The whole thing with Mr. Best and the hotel was reminding me of the Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can see that. They, they, had, they had a lot of things with, with uh, the afterlife and death. Like they had the one where uh, a uh, peddler had to uh, prevent death from killing this young boy. And uh, we had seen Robert Redford as death in uh, yeah. another episode. So I was used to personification of death. I just didn't expect to see that type of story on Dark Shadows. Right. It was different for Dark Shadows. For dark With Dark Shadows, you almost expect to see the, the Grim Reaper type of, of uh, character. But yeah, it is more like a Twilight Zone depiction of death and Mr. Best. And then we get this infusion of Greek mythology, which is also unusual for Dark Shadows, although not a first for Dark Shadows, because uh, they did do a, a riff on Pygmalion with uh, Amanda Harris and Charles Delaware Tate. They kind of took a page from that. And uh, there's a reference to uh, Cerberus on the pentagram uh, that was buried with Quentin's son. May this protect you from the wrath of Cerberus, uh, which of course is the multi-headed dog that guards the the gates of the underworld. So there was, there were, they were occasionally, they would drop Greek mythology in there. Sometimes they drop Egyptian mythology in there as well. But this is definitely straight out of Orpheus and Eurydice. The whole underworld, like trying to get out of the underworld, they can't touch each other and uh, basically ends this, this <laughs> the same way for for uh amanda harris they, they drop a ton of earth on her oh yes yeah she said it what, all went up in her nostrils and her shape in her mouth and all that yeah because i expected that they were just gonna when when, when that was gonna happen i thought it was gonna be something like uh, a disappearance yeah that, that chroma key effect and then, oh, they, <laughs> they just, dropped it and then they moved they on dropped. to the le- next scene and left her under all of that <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she tells the story that she just was buried under all this dirt and then they just went off to shoot the next scene and just kind of left her there. Mark, what did you think of this Greek mythology being infused into Dark Shadows and Mr. Best? It has now been so long since I've seen any of those particular episodes. They're a little bit they're 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 hazier in my mind than, you know, a lot of the key stuff we've been talking about. But my recollection of looking back was actually thinking, you know, Mr. Best, he, he's got a sinister air about him. But you know what? If I've got to go, I kind of, you know, I'm, I want to talk to Mr. Best, you know, <laughs> not <laughs> not the Grim Reaper. <laughs> yes. You know? But oh, but I but then again, and then and I think, well, maybe not, because you may remember a line from Curse of the Demon when uh, Kumar says the devil is most dangerous when he's being pleasant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, to you know, and when I think back on that, you know, I remember thinking Mr. Best was, uh, yes, different within the context of Dark Shadows, creepy because he was charming. And then Amanda's end, I remember feeling a little bit sorrowful because I felt like she was, like you said, she was not... Born, not in the way of you know your typical human. She was she came from a piece of art. So did she have a soul? Did mm-hmm. she have true memories? Were they constructed memories? My my thoughts in that always were: What was she really? Where? What did she have inside her? Yeah, because that's left unanswered. So yeah, what did she have inside her? That's a good question. Does she have a soul? Presumably, 
if she's if Mr. Well, Best is bringing her to the land of the dead or wherever. Yeah, to be, you would assume so. You would assume she so. must. She must. I mean, that process, that magical process, he must have imbued her with maybe it's not the same as a human soul, but it's some essence, uh, some sentience that clearly that she has. So, yeah, I always found Charles Delaware Tate as a medium for channeling power. Interesting. To and from art. And mm-hmm. to, to actually be able to, it was one thing to me to make a painting, you know, in the, the Oscar Wilde mode, but to create life, mm-hmm. you know, take, taking that next yeah. step. And, and, I, and I, I think in my, like I said, it's been a long time since I've seen those episodes, but my impression from when I did see them was all about what was this person that was created, what What's fabricated in her mind, you know, whether were, were memories artificially given to her or was she actually somehow born? She and must had have a life been. cycle just like any other human being. I, I mean, I, he was able to resurrect Garth Blackwood, who clearly had memories of who Aristide was. I mean, he was yeah. he was dead set on getting Aristide. Uh, so he remembered. So, I mean, he must have been conjured up from hell or wherever when the painting was created. So there's more to it than just this image that's now alive. There's more to this. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the the soul or the the personality, the the essence of that person comes from somewhere. Yeah. In Quentin's case, the soul is is the painting. The painting is in the Dorian Gray mode, his painting, which we finally get to see all of the age and all the sins that are the awful things and the damage that's been he's been through some stuff there <laughs> quentin has clearly um one thing i would have liked to have seen though is we know the painting transforms during the full moon instead of quentin so what does the old werewolf look like you know what does the 1970 werewolf <laughs> look like in that painting yeah. that would have been fun to see i think yeah um i, I won't go in into it because again i don't want to sidetrack but in my the unpublished labyrinth yes. of souls that, you know, the painting, what's left of it is at that point in time, basically unrecognizable. And yeah. that, that's sort of the conflict about what happens in that story is because it does the painting have a lifespan? Yeah. Will it rot away eventually? Yes. Yeah. And that fans can read. I will, like I said, I'm going to post the link to that in the show notes when I post this episode. I'll make sure it's still, I think it's still up there. I haven't. Uh, yeah, it is. It I is, mean, all yeah. the files are there. I know all the files are there, but I don't know that I've still got the link on my site like I used to. I'll have to check that out. But it should, I mean, if you've got the link, it should work. Yeah. Um, the Leviathan storyline was, they were writing House of Dark Shadows while the Leviathan storyline was going on and they were gearing up for House of Dark Shadows. And because most of the main cast members, Joan Bennett and Jonathan Frid, Grayson Hall, Thayer David, etc., who did Thayer David, uh, uh, Professor Stokes, he was also an ally against the Leviathans, but he didn't show up enough. Like he did a couple of things, but he was, he must have been busy during that time because we didn't see as much of Professor Stokes, I think, as it, I would have. It looks like they were going to develop Stokes more until they decided to make that special Rush episode. Mm-hmm. Barnabas suddenly becomes sympathetic. Right. Because right. if you, you look back, he finally pays a visit to the antique shop. And something's going on in his mind every time he sees these uh, serpent jewelry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, a couple who uh, Megan and their husband. And I was expecting an episode where he's going to pull out one of his books and go to Julia. This is ancient race called the Leviathans. Yes, right. And, and, you know, be the equivalent of when somebody in a Lovecraft story 
picked up the Necronomicon to explain everything that's going on. Yeah, he, he is the Professor Armitage. I always call him the Van Helsing, but he's also the Professor Armitage sort of character in Dark Shadows who would figure that out and say, you know, that these are the Leviathans, ancient race of beings, blah, 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 and, and then be instrumental in helping to defeat them. Um, but yeah, they, they kind of dropped that. That didn't, that didn't happen. It doesn't pop up to a parallel time to explain the room. Yes, and that's where where the Leviathans ends. Uh, Jeb Hawks is killed by Sky Rumson. He's pushed off what was hell because we find out that you can drown the Leviathans. Um, I guess they can't swim. They're not good swimmers. <laughs> so Jeb uh, goes off Widow's Hill like he did with Peter Bradford. He killed Jeb that way too. I don't so, know if water, if water was a weakness of the Leviathans or just the Jeb. Oh yeah, maybe so. Maybe it was just Jeb specifically. Maybe the, just the, you know, the Messiah of the Leviathans is the one who is, he has that weakness or he he's, can be drowned. So he's destroyed that way. Carolyn is a widow. Um, and while this was going on, Barnabas, they, they discovered the, this room and par- that le- Barnabas discovers this room that leads to an alternate band of time, a parallel universe. And he, he is determined to enter parallel because he thinks he can escape the, the vampire curse that Jeb has put on him, uh, which is interesting logic. Maybe in this universe, I won't be a vampire, but um, he makes it into parallel time. And uh, I will leave it there with that, with the Leviathans. But I do want to ask you guys this. A lot of fans fans to this day say that they don't like the Leviathan storyline. There are a lot of fans who love, I think it almost has a cult following to it uh, in comparison to like the really popular storylines. The people who like Leviathans really like it, uh, but a lot of fans really dislike the Leviathan storyline. So what would you guys say to fans who maybe dislike the Leviathans? What would you say in its defense that they maybe should give it another look? It is confusing at times, but remember that when you initially saw Quentin Collins, and if you didn't know the turn of the screw, you were wondering what the heck was going on with that one too. And we came to appreciate it because it evolved into the best storyline of Dark Shadows of 1897. And unfortunately, they had a plan to spin off, not parallel time, it was going to be the return of Victoria Winters. And we see that was all the um, machinations involving uh, Peter Bradford and his ghosts. And if they had been able to get Alexandra Moki to come back as Victoria Winters, we would have had a very fascinating offshoot of the Leviathans that uh, would, I think, have been superior to uh, the parallel time storyline. Mark, what about you? What Rick just said about Alexander, Alexander, that opens all all kinds of new doors in some other, that would have to be parallel time to make that happen. But I completely understand the dislike for the Leviathans. I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with the entire, that that storyline. And my fondness for it is largely rooted in nostalgia because truly that was when I first got to watch Dark Shadows full-time after only seeing it sporadically for, you know, however many times I was able to see it before then. Um, And yet when the Leviathan storyline is good, when it goes to that sort of sense of terror of the unknown it's unparalleled i mean that 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 thing behind the door in the antique shop the 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 expertise of these child actors to convey that's not to my mind very objectively good that 
that that stuff was very very strong the problem i have is that as the storyline went along it became muddled it became uh divided between one set of criteria and another and it just it started to collapse under its own weight of not knowing where it was going to go. And again, hence why uh, why I decided to revisit it for first the Pharaoh, because I felt like we had such a strong foundation that that ultimately didn't go or or the storyline didn't go where I think people wanted it to or where it should have from a dramatic standpoint. Um, so like I said, I understand the dislike for it, but I feel like it's roots, it's heart. At least it started out in the right place. It presented some of the strongest uh, moments of fear in the entire series. There was some great acting in there. I mean, the, especially those kids, uh, Chris Pinnock, um, when, when he was at his, most dangerous. He really shone. Really? And then he got a chance. And, you know, when, when we got to the Cyrus Longworth, John Yeager story, that's where we really got to see Chris really shine as an actor. So that that sort of eased him into the series as a whole. So, yeah, Leviathan's is a mixed bag. Um, and I love it for what it did for me, drawing me into Dark Shadows, Heart and Soul. Yeah, it's a deeply weird storyline. It's a flawed storyline. It's flawed, but it's weird and cool. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned Curse the Pharaoh, uh, Mark. Um, how did Dark Shadows inform your work? Um, and I, I was going to say, you know, specifically, it seems like the Leviathans work their way into your stories, at least with uh, Curse of the Pharaoh and Path of, of Fate. Is there any sort of influence or inspiration when you're working on Dark Shadows or non-Dark Shadows projects as well? Dark Shadows has always been a centerpiece of my universe, my fictional universe. Uh, almost everything I write, it's as uh, whether it's tied in not tied in uh if, if i have a little easter egg so to speak here and there i've approached an awful lot of fiction that i write as if dark shadows was the bible as if the the you know or portions of dark shadows anyway that the lovecraft mythos was all there even in my most non Dark Shadows uh, excursions into fiction. My World War II novel, Blue Devil Island, it, it's got sort of a Lovecraftian basis to it. The one tribute to Dark, dark Shadows, Shadows that I put in there was, 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 a, was a pilot You're named echoing. Max Collins. And if you, if you look at the description of the character, it's freaking Quentin. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I and I've done that in other stories and books where I will just sort of drop a little Easter egg, you know, to say, you know, what what if this really is tied into Dark Shadows as if it is if that universe exists somewhere beyond the confines of what I'm writing. Uh, as far as my direct Dark Shadows stuff, the novel that Beth Massey and I did, Dreams of the Dark, mm -hmm. we decided to sort of it, we didn't consider it parallel time per se, but we wanted to expand the horizons of dark, of the world of Dark Shadows as it was portrayed in the show. We felt like, okay, between 
these episodes, there is room for more things to happen. So we opened up this space in the storyline uh, after Victoria has returned from the past, from 1795, introduced a new vampire, uh, interacted with the Collins family as they were in the series at that time, and told a new story, and then closed it up so that then the events of the show could continue right where the end of uh, Dreams of the Dark leaves off. Now, the big finish stories, Path of Fate, Curse of the Pharaoh, in Blood Dance, I've, let's see, the Path of Fate and Curse of the Pharaoh are set just whenever you can fit them in, like in the 70s, you know, sometime in the mm-hmm. 70s. They might logically follow events that the show set up. And with Curse of the Pharaoh, I introduced uh, a new character, uh, what was her name, Gretchen Warwick, that Marie Wallace played in the drama. Yes. To indicate that the Leviathans weren't gone. They may, they may have had to move around to, to get past what happened in the show, but it was a vehicle for me to sort of revisit Jeb and Caroline and try to make some sense out of why a being, a Leviathan being, would transform, where, where the human construct would overshadow the otherworldly being. Uh, and so I don't know that it worked out perfectly, not not by any stretch, but I wanted to at least explore the possibilities to go back in time to tie some of that Egyptian lore and make that more pronounced and to tie it more directly into Lovecraft and or and not just Lovecraft, but other writers who contributed to the Cthulhu mythos, you know, mm-hmm. and bring in the Pharaoh Nefren Ka. Yes, I was going to say, was yeah. Very, very distinctly from uh, the Lovecraftian universe. Yeah. So to tie that in there, make it firm that Leviathans and the great old ones, if not one in the same, are quite related. Uh, and then sort of polish up that stuff that went on with Carolyn and Jeb. Now, to, and here again, I'm going to go back to what I said before. It's been a long time since I've done a lot of this stuff. To even remember what the hell Curse of the Pharaoh was about, I had to go back to the Wikipedia and read. Because, you know, I've written hundreds of things since I've written that. And I don't revisit what I've written in the past very often, I, I because usually I hate it. And... So I, I listened to Curse of the Pharaoh once, once it came out, you know, once Big Finish put it out, then I was moving on to the next thing. And then I moved on to the next thing and I moved on to the next thing. So it's really, really hard for me to go back and revisit that and remember what I did. So don't ask me what I did because I don't know. <laughs> I, I felt it worked at the time. <laughs> no, it, yeah, no, it was it was cool. Like uh, you know, you brought in, um, like you said, Nefren Ka and uh, Carolyn as the she's a reincarnation. I think of Nefren Ka's wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah and uh, or at yeah. least she. I don't remember whether it was actual reincarnation or whether she mm-hmm. had memories that were enforced upon her. Right, and Jeb was uh, also like you explained how Jeb was um, Sniferu or. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was something. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to. Yeah. No, I'm trying to yeah, but remember. He, yeah. It's been a while since I listened to it. But yeah, I remember. He was part of that Egyptian history. And, Egyptian, had, and, and the Lovecraftian aspect. Like you worked in you worked into the Lovecraftian pantheon as well. And it's Path of Faith, too, with, with having Dagon in there and yeah. that all of that. 
tying the Leviathan, which makes sense because that's what inspired the Leviathans. And I think to have a better understanding of the Leviathans, I think folks should read Lovecraft, especially the Dunwich Horror, uh, for sure. But um, yeah, for just, sure. And mm-hmm. uh, and some of uh, August Durlis' work, the, re- sure. the related work, I, I, I have a feeling that uh, some of the stuff from the Leviathans also probably pulled as much from Durlis as Lovecraft. But, sure. but, you know, rather than get back into the those direct influences and everything, I... Uh, Let's suffice it to say that Dark Shadows is absolutely pivotal in an awful lot of my work, whether it is overt or, like I said, more of an Easter egg, so a little tribute to, yeah. to the franchise. And I love it when creators do that. And I wish more creators would do that. There should be more references to Dark Shadows in popular culture. Um, I think the most recent one that comes to mind is the TV show Supernatural. Like the vampires were watching Dark Shadows in an episode of that show. Like things like that are really fun. And when you have a name drop of Collins Port, Maine or, or something like that, it's fun to see those things. And it helps to keep Dark Shadows to some degree, I think, in the pop cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I know a lot of people have said this, and it, this is slightly a tangent, but only slightly, and because some shows have these great crossovers. And I, I think having Dark Shadows and Kolchak would have been just such oh, a fucking yeah. great cross. That would have been great. They did. Oh, story that a segue was- into something I wrote. I was in a uh, Kolchak night's uh, of uh, anthology called Passages in the Top. And I wrote a story called The Shadow of the Phoenix, which has Kolchak, apparently before he had that vampire case in Las Vegas, he was investigating a uh, death of a woman in a fire. Oh, wow. Who had brought with her kids. I love that. And that case all got forgotten with the vampire storyline. And it's a phoenix. It's not... Laura Collins. Okay. Oh, a different but it's phoenix. a different phoenix. I love it. When I was doing this, I was trying to tie this in also into uh, Robert E. Howard in that the uh, first Conan story was uh, Phoenix on a Sword. Mm-hmm. It had a phoenix spirit battling the serpent god set. So I was going to have the, now in Robert E. Howard, the phoenix was just a benevolent entity. I, I have the idea that the, the evil gods are, you know, evil is a relative uh, statement. There, there are evil gods opposed to each other. Mm-hmm. So I was making the phoenix god evil, and I was also going to bring in the serpent god. As I bring in the serpent god, I said, this is a great way to apply the, the Leviathans. Cool. I had to have a character being the human agent of the Leviathans. And I'm thinking about this. I'm saying since this is becoming a Dark Shadows homage, we had Lara Parker, guest star on the Night Stalker. Yes, Trevi collection, yeah. yeah. It was Madeline Perkins. And it's the, and this was from Moonstone Books. And yeah. Moonstone has the, there's a problem that was the Kolchak Night Stalker writes in that they made it from novels that were originally published by Jeb Rice. And... Moonstone has the rights to the, like, the first two movies, Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, that Dan Curtis was involved with. But the TV series, which Dan Curtis was divorced from, they don't have the rights to that. So I, I asked, I wanted it, it was okay if I used The Witch, played by Lara Parker. And um, 
I was told you can't do that, but you could uh, sort of use her if you don't call Madeline Perkins. Mm-hmm. And don't allude, you know, I, I had her in the an asylum. I didn't explain totally how she got there, but uh, you know, that's where she ended up with in the end of the next episode. So I had to have, give her an alias and have an explanation sort of imply why she was with Madeline Perkins and the other. So I said she was born Angelica Waitley. Oh, great. <laughs> She's related to the Waitleys of Dunwich. Oh, I love it. And oh, you're telling me that's awesome. She changed, that's awesome. she changed her name when uh, she moved to Hollywood. <laughs> or not to, uh, to um, actually, it was you know, when she became a model. And she changed her name. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about stuff like that is that none of us create in a vacuum we all have our influences and stuff and without you know without plagiarizing or without even calling too much attention to the source i love when there's just something subtle that says look this came from here isn't mm-hmm. that cool yes agreed moonstone also did a cold check crossover with barnabas there was a barnabas cold check crossover in the, and Bar- barnabas turns out it's was a the comic one. it's a comic yes that had turned he turned Sorzani, uh into a vampire it was the barnabas was the one responsible for that or something it was something to that effect. i have it at somewhere but I, I haven't seen that but i love it it's I, called I interview what a great idea yeah it's it's called interview with a vampire and he's uh okay Invited the Collinwood to see Barnabas. It's picked up by Willie at the train station, and Barnabas gives him a uh, interview, and he reveals that Janice Crozani was part of his bloodline, and then I think uh, he, one of his female victims, became a vampire and bit Janice Crozani from the original uh, next story. Well, I know what I'm going to watch tonight. I haven't watched Night Stalker in years and years, so I'm going to be honest. Darren McGavin is so much fun. He is a folk hero. My God. That's great. (laughs) I saw him referred to once as a in an article as the every man's Van Helsing, which I loved. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, are there any other um, ways in which you you work dark shadows into your work, or is that the key one? That uh, I, I've got another one. Oh, go go for it. I've been doing uh, the in Taylor Shadowman primarily, and some of these have been collected in other books by Blackwell Press. There's a series called Shadow of the Opera and Sisters of Shadow. I am sort of creating a fictional history of super crop. There's people like Professor Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that's great. Cool. And one character who I could use without copyright problems is called uh, Josephine Bosama. Mm-hmm. And she is sort of, if, the, if Moriarty was the Napoleon of crime, she is literally the Josephine. Oh, cool. And uh, in fact, she is the uh, descendant from uh, an illegitimate daughter of uh, Empress Josephine. Now, the uh, historical Josephine, who I, uh, as I was doing the series, I, I came to conclude was uh, the inspiration for Josette. Okay. Because oh. Josephine, historical Josephine, came from uh, Martinique. Oh. And the, her uh, descendant, is, Josephine Basavo, appeared in a detective series uh, about a master criminal named uh, Arsene Lupin, and the 
author was Maurice LeBlanc, which was very popular on both sides of the Atlantic up until the 1930s. And Joseph Gusamo, who uh, starts in the 1890s, uh, a criminal career, is a gorgeous blonde who has, uh, who is the set. There were like three Josephine Bassamos in history. Uh, who are, uh, one is the granddaughter, and the other is the great-granddaughter of the original. And this creates the uh, false impression. They all look alike, so it creates the false impression that Josephine Bassamo has been in war. So I am looking at this. I said, I want to use this character. He's a blonde who has all these paintings from earlier time periods. It sounds a lot like Angelique. Uh-huh. It's also a little like the Phoenix, too. But, uh, so I write Cosmo Basamo very much like Angelique. And then just to add something more, I had a uh, plot line where since... Uh, Josephine Mosamo is descended from the struggle. Josephine, she has relatives in Martinique. I had, she had a, a distant, the original Josephine, the, the historical wife of Napoleon, had a cousin in Martinique who was the illegitimate uh, daughter of a French merchant. If you've read uh, Laura Parker's novels, you know where this is coming from. Yeah. And I said that cousin had a twin sister who uh, was given a child to a cult, which was the King of Yellow cult. Oh, cool. <laughs> Here we go. Now we're yeah. <laughs> tying the King of well, Yellow. She's not, uh, she couldn't become a saint. So she's, and her name is Alexis. Oh, how great. <laughs> and she becomes a, a mortal in this cult. And, uh, but she, she doesn't know that she had a, she, that a twin sister also became a witch. Ah. And I think I I, I want to have her at various times in history. I'm probably going to have a story uh, one day where she'll say something like, she, uh, oh, no, I did I did have something where they, they find out about it, Angelique's history. They find, they find out Angelique exists. Yeah. But they conclude that she was this goody two-shoes who went off and married some guy in, in they believe, the false story that has been spread okay. by the Collins family. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up. I am so thrilled that you both were able to take some time today to talk with me about uh, the Leviathans. Um, how can people find out more about your work and what you have coming up? Uh, if you guys want to give your websites out. OK, mine is just my full name, Stephen Mark Rainey dot com. S-T-E-P-H-E-N. M-A-R-K-R-A-I-N-E-Y dot com. And I'm on you just search for Mark Rainey on Facebook because, you know, I go by Mark most of the time. If somebody calls me Stephen, they usually want money. <laughs> but, yeah, I in my hometown, there were three Mark Rainies and two Stephen Rainies. So I got confused for all of them. So I finally decided for writing, I'm just going to go by Stephen Mark Rainey. Do the whole damn thing. There you go. And I just have an Amazon uh, author page. Amazon author page. Okay. I will definitely put links to both uh, of those in the show notes. Guys, thank you again for joining me. Uh, really had fun chatting with you about the Leviathans. Uh, so I hope listeners will give this storyline another chance after listening to the, what Mark and Rick had to say and putting a lot of this into context. Uh, it was really fascinating. So thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Folks, please do like and subscribe uh, to the podcast 
podcast. If you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, please do rate and review. That does help the podcast to grow and to reach more fans of Dark Shadows and classic horror. Uh, So spread the word and thanks for listening. For as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly vanished, for there will always be terror at Collinwood.